Look up in the sky, kids. It's a bird. It's a plane. No, I was right the first time. It's a bird. Jesus Christ, I hope that bird's tame. Oh, that bird looks tasty as a motherfucker. What are we going to do? Bite the bill to fees? Hell no. So this is the burger salesmanship on the good ship Smart Co. Eat a dick, all you haters. The bird sales with ships on the wing. Mmm, Jonathan's and Livingston sales goal. Selling you shit, son. And when he sells, he just got sang. He'll tell you where to put your money, man. Right in his little ass beak. Then he'll carry it all to places where the stars of Smodco speak. Oh, Smodco don't run on wishes and kisses, bitches. I wish it did, but it don't. We need your dollars. So don't give it to me, man. Give it to the bird. I am no good with money. Bird's like a financial genius. Bird invested in Apple in the 70s, man. And obviously a big Twitter backer. Bird got out of the music business for a collapse, though, man. He saw digital coming. He's pretty smart. After that, the bird invested in a few rental storage facilities. You see? You see? That's thinking. The bird's like Jerry Graff, man. Goes and buys a fucking list of nurses. One grand. If you pay two, I'll eat my hat. Four or five thousand nurses. It's going wild. He's doing very well, man. You hear a lot of things, but no, he's doing well. He's doing very well. Oh, the bird of salesmanship is flying, Ed Harris. Look up. Look up all these live Smodco shows, he said in a ham-fisted segue. Look them all up at csmod.com. That's S-E-E-S-M-O-D.com. This is how you come see a live Smodco show, man. Break it down, bird. Yeah. Keep it soft. I got to sell now, for heaven's sakes. No apologies necessary. Uh, you know, all, all the good is yours. Only the mistakes are mine. Ready for this list, man? Uh, this, uh, some people are like 10 minutes of ads. I, I don't, I don't even listen to your ads. I just fast forward through them. Who the fuck you think you're punishing, Rebel Rebel? Me? I'm going to be having fun at the live show with all the folks who do listen to the pre show ad. Who you trying to punish is the bird. But that shit don't work, son. You cannot punish the bird. I put a bullet in my mouth once, man. The fucking bird spit it out. Do not fuck with the bird. What's a quaddle and shit, man? Now, a lot of folks have been asking, uh, hey, man, is Jay and Silent Bob get old coming to New York Comic Con this year? No, Jay and Silent Bob get old is not coming to New York Comic Con this year. Sorry. But the comic book men are, bitch. AMC's comic book men, the cast, going to be there Friday, October 12th. From 245 to 345. Oh, all five of the comic book men on stage. Uh, right from the hit AMC show. Uh, we're going to be up there. Me, Bri, Walt, Ming, Mike, showing you clips from this season, taking Q&A questions and whatnot. Uh, you know, chilling out, talking about the show right there at Comic-Con. Makes absolute sense. But then at night, shit's going to get sexy, son. It's going to get very sexy, man. Come join us, that same crew, over at the Gramercy Theater in town, man, right there in New York City, Niac, for our very first live performance of the Smodco podcast, The Secret Stash. Me, Brian Johnson, Walt Flanagan, Ming Mike, sitting there at the Gramercy, October 12th, the evening of Friday, October 12th. Yeah, Bird knows it. They're all getting geeky at the Gramercy on Friday, October 12th, the weekend of New York Comic Con. So, yes. We will be in New York. But hey, before that, man, don't forget Babylon 100 coming on, man. October 6th in Reno at the El Dorado Hotel. Get your tickets. Be there for the 100th historic episode of Hollywood Babylon. 
October 13th, man, which is the night after the Gramercy Secret Stash Show, I'm going to go up to Boston and do a Q&A at the Wilbur. That's right. Good evening with Kevin Smith. Normally, those very short and unsatisfying. This one's minimum three hours long. October 14th, that's at the Wilbur Theater. October 14th, Comic Book Men returns for season two. Only on AMC after, you know, that zombie power hour, two-hour block. Uh, get old. A lot of people have been asking, like, what the fuck? Is Jay falling off the wagon? You know, he's, is Jay fucking, is, is he not all clean and sober? Yes, Jay is still clean and sober, kids. We just ran out of bank shows, man. Yeah, Bird don't like that. Bird's like, I like Jason Muse, Jason Muse. Maybe that's what he's saying. Uh, but we're getting back on the road, me and Muse. Uh, Jizzy and Busy getting Izzy, man. Jay and Silent Bob get old. October 16th in Silver Spring, Maryland, man. At the Fillmore. Then we get old again three days later in Los Angeles. Yeah, over on the other side of the country, Bird. We're flying on the back of the Bird of Salesmanship. Oh, John lives in sales goal, man. He'll never ask you to buy a second ticket to kick you off his plane. Love that Bird. Uh, three days later, man, we go to Los Angeles. We're doing Get Old at the Lovitz. October 19th. Next night, Babylon in Vegas. That's right, Babylon 101, I think it'll be. October 20th at the Laugh Factory at the Tropicana. Uh, week after that, Babylon uh, at the Lovitz, October 27th. Back to our 8 p.m. show. Stick around afterwards. Come see Ralph Garman perform Batman Cacophony Part 3. Hollywood Babylon Comic-Con Theater. That's right. We're going to drop another Hollywood Babylon Comic-Con Theater Part 3 of Batman Cacophony. All-star cast starring only pretty much Ralph. 10 p.m. right after our Babylon show at the Lovitz, October 27th. Little shout-out, man. Bring it down, bird. Sexy time. Buffalo, Connecticut, South Carolina, North Carolina, Philadelphia. You're all getting shows in November. Just go to csmod.com. For details for all the other shows I just talked about as well, csmod.com or babyloncav.com. New pods dropping this week, man. You got a brand new Smodcast with me, Moj, and Emo Kev is back. Brand new Babylon, Babylon 99, the Gretzky edition. And uh, brand new Fat Man on Batman with the Batman, the Brave and the Bolds, Diedrich Bader. Oh, what a lovely tea party it's going to be, man. Smodco is your home, kids. Nothing but fucking free fun. Unless you go and see that shit live, then we charge a little bit. The bird. Just give it to the bird. Take us away, bird. Take us to another fine Smodco podcast. is Kelly Carlin and welcome to Waking from the American Dream.
ever. More people own homes now than ever before in the country's history, and that's exciting for the future of America. That was John Elliott with his uh, new song, Company Time. It's uh, on a uh, album called It Doesn't Matter, Volume 2, because there wasn't, there was just not enough room on Volume 1 to not matter about things. Uh, check out John El- uh, John Elliott's stuff. You can only get it, understand this, until Election Day. He's made these things available only till Election Day because I guess then after that, it, it maybe it matters. I don't know. And of course, it's not com. No, which, you know, here at Waking from the American Dream, we always think, well, you just say the person's name.com. But no, John Elliott's way too creative for that. It's uh, the com, which I think m- must be something about the rapture. Oh, maybe it is. Maybe we're in the rapture right now. That would be really nice. You know what? I'm pretty sure we're in the rapture right now because uh, I got an email from Gallagher's manager wanting to be on my podcast. And that the only way that could happen is if we are all dead and Jesus is walking the earth somewhere. Uh, of course, the only way it's ever going to happen is if we're all dead and Jesus is walking the earth somewhere, because I really don't see me having Gallagher on this show. You know, I never heard the Mark Marin podcast that he was on, but I know that he walked out of it. And I know he's a grumpy, sad, bitter man. And he used to steal my dad's jokes. <laughs> so really, don't think it's going to happen. Not very interested. Fascinated? Yes, but not enough to have him in my home. <laughs> We'd need some sort of spiritual cleansing or something after that. I mean, I do have some sage here and some crystals. We definitely would have to do that and ring a big Tibetan bell or something like that. And then maybe um, explode a, a watermelon 
Maybe that's how you cleanse the space after Gallagher's left is just hit fruit, make smash fruit everywhere you can. Welcome, everyone. It's October 4th. And uh, hold on, I have to grab my chai tea. Uh, yes, I woke up from a nap today. It was one of those naps. Oh, uh, hello. What day is it? And what time is it? Holy shit. Uh, four o'clock woke up. And okay, so I had to run to uh, yes, this podcast today is being brought to you by chai latte from Starbucks. No, they're not paying for anything. But They've, they've woken me up and I, I paid my fair share for this cup. So, uh, I'd like to thank them for making, um, this 200 calorie cup of deliciousness to wake me up. And, uh, I haven't been doing sugar lately. So drinking this is literally like heroin or something for me right now. I'll probably be asleep again in 45 minutes. Um, in fact, I feel a, f- a hot flash coming on. Oh dear. Uh, anyway, welcome. It's October 4th. Today is the first day, uh, where we are not our version dying of heat in Los Angeles. I know we're wimps here. We're wimps when it gets a little chilly. We're wimps when it gets a little warm. I know you people around the rest of the country and probably other parts of the world have it much worse when it comes to heat and humidity. But we normally don't get humidity, but because of the strange warming of the planet, which we won't call global warming because obviously there's no such thing. Uh, I'm kidding. Um, is that we've been getting more humidity here in Los Angeles. This is a semi-arid desert, people. We don't get humidity here. We don't do humidity here, but we are now doing humidity in Southern California. So it's been, it was a hot time. Usually I use my fan maybe five days out of 365. We have no air conditioning. We live by the coast. No, I don't live on the beach. No, I'm not like a Malibu Barbie. I live in a very sensible neighborhood, but about a mile in from the beach. So I get the beautiful ocean breeze. So we don't have air conditioning here normally. Our house was built in 1941. Who wants to put air conditioning in this thing? We open doors, we open windows, we put on fans. Fan has been going for like three weeks straight, people. That's how horrible it's been. Today, not so much. Actually feels like uh, Southern California again. Very happy about that. And um, feeling like fall. I haven't seen, have you seen any colored leaves yet here? I haven't yet either. It, t- it takes a long time because we're so far south. You know, leaves don't go by temperature. They go by the angle of the sun. Yeah, I know. They fucking know the angle of the sun. And when the, that starts changing, they start changing. has nothing to do with temperature until you get that weird cold snap thing. And then that fucks it all up too. But uh, I haven't seen any leaves changing, but I've been getting up early and seeing kids going to school in the morning. And man, it just brings me back, like totally back. Like, wow, school, like, wow, life was so simple when you just went to school and they told you what to do and what you needed to do to get an A versus an F and, and, and I was, I was, while I was in the Starbucks, I saw somebody with a brand, we have, um, LMU is in the neighborhood here, Loyola Mount, Marymount University, so we have a lot of college kids. And I was in the Starbucks and I saw a beautiful brand new textbook this person had next to their thing. And I just, my loins kind of ached for it because I'm like a school nut and I love textbooks because inside textbooks holds everything. Like, oh, like, like you'll, you'll, you're so excited because you know you're going to find all the answers to the universe in that textbook. And um, and then halfway through the semester, you're like, I fucking hate this thing. I fucking hate that I have to read fucking 60 pages tonight. And I fucking have to memorize all these fucking facts about meiosis and mitosis. I'm ready to stab my eyes out. But no, first week of October, it's still in that honeymoon period where, and it's the part in the textbooks, like perfectly clean. And you've got your brand new highlighters. Oh my 
God, I miss that so much. There's something about being 49 and um, having lived life for 49 years where there's a bit mystery gone from life. Like you've done kind of major things already. So things aren't a mystery. And then, of course, with, you know, having two parents that have died, okay, that, been through that, know what that's like. And I'm not saying interesting, fascinating new things are going to not come into my life and, you know, and not surprise me and all of that. But there's just something like, okay, yeah, like owning a house, cleaning the house. Like, I know how to do all of this. It's just, I don't know. There's something weird. I've been thinking a lot about this lately. And at first it was depressing me. But now I think it's, I don't know. They talk about the generative years at like after 40 is like your generative time. So I guess you're not learning constantly, but you're now like ready to make shit happen because you don't have to fucking learn everything. So, but I want to learn. I actually just want to go back to school and have a textbook. That would really be nice. (laughs) This other stuff, you're making it up. People are acting like they know, which I don't know. Like last week, I was producing for... um, uh, TV show set list, which is a uh, Troy Conrad's uh, brain, evil genius Troy Conrad's brain thing that he made up. This great, fantastic improv, improv, improvised comedy stand-up comedy show, comedy without a net. And then Paul Provenza has come in and, of course, helped Troy produce it at all these major festivals. And now they're shooting it for Sky Atlantic TV in the UK. So they brought me in to do some producing. And I'm not a TV producer. I mean, that's just a funny, sad little thing. My mother was, and I pretend, and I know how to make a list. And yes, I know how to call an agent and talk to them and all of that. But, you know, I'm pretending the whole time. So it's it's kind of funny. You know, it's like I'm making it up as I go along. And it's not that that's like a mystery or anything like that. I mean, that's the thing. It's like, oh, I get it. You just kind of fake it. I get it now. It's like it's all faking it pretty much. So, um that's, you know, that's what it comes. My mother said this to me once. She said, you know, Kelly, we're all pretending. All of us adults, we're all pretending that we know what we're doing. That was the greatest thing she ever said to me. And yet didn't believe her. No, did not believe her. I still thought I had to be perfect in order to go out in the world. Letting you know, do not have to be perfect to go out in the world, people. Clearly, clearly, if you watched the debates last night, neither one of them were perfect. Uh, very interesting, but we're not going there. I can't go there. I just can't. Uh, but I will catch you up on a little bit on what I was doing. I also went to Toronto two weeks ago. It was at JFL 42, which was amazingly cool. Got to meet Patton Oswalt in the elevator of the hotel. <laughs> it was so cool. It was such a Twitter moment. Hi, I'm Kelly Carlin. Oh my God. So nice to meet you. He was very sweet. I would love to spend more time with him. Hmm. Need to have him on the show. Uh, but had an amazing time because I got to do my show three nights in a row. And I'd never done that before. I'd never even done my show two nights in a row. I'd just been doing it like once a month, twice a month kind of a thing. And I have to tell you, if you're a performer out there or if you've done any, if you have any kind of thing where you get a chance to do something like that a couple of nights in a row or a couple of days in a row, I highly recommend it. It makes your competency level go way up. And it becomes, um, the, you know, the ladder, there's a ladder where they talk about competency. At first, there's conscious incompetence. It's when you know you don't know what you're doing. And then there's uh, conscious incompetence. And then there's unconscious. No, first, there's unconscious incompetence. You don't know. You don't even know you're doing it wrong. That's when it's scary. Then there's conscious incompetence when you know you're doing it wrong and you can't help it. You just are stuck there. 
And then there is conscious competence where you know you're kind of getting the groove of it and everything like that. And then there's unconscious competence. That's where I got by the third day in Toronto because I was just, the words were just there. I was on fire. I was able to just be on the stage and be myself and be in my body. And, um, it was really exciting. Uh, I don't know, guys, not, you know, 10 years ago, I never thought that was possible in my life. I just, everything should, everything in one's life should bring hope to, to, to yourself and to everyone else because, you know, anything's possible. And, uh, wow, it was really, really fun. And I felt I, for the first time after doing this show almost a year and a half, I actually felt like a professional. I felt like a professional. That's, that's huge for me because, you know, since I was about 20 years old, I've been craving, craving to be a creative professional <laughs> and felt like an idiot, felt like a conscious incompetent most of my life. So to have some unconscious competency is, uh, cool. Um, maybe we'll talk about that later. I'm going to have some callers call in later. Um, and, but not now, but around 6 p.m., we're going to have some callers. That's 9 p.m., you Eastern folks. That's 8 p.m., you Central folks. And that's 7 p.m., you Mountain folks. Do you see how I did that? I'm so damn smart. Look at me in my time zones. I can also do multiplication tables. I was really good at that. But at six o'clock, we're going to have, um, people call in and talk about whatever. Um, and the number to do that will be, um, 323-473-3112. But don't call in yet because I, I can't answer yet because I'm having a guest on, but not yet. Uh, so what else is going on? Okay. So we'll talk a little bit about the debates. Okay. I don't really want to get into it much, but, um, you know, it's fascinating. When I was a comm major, they talked about how the, uh, Nixon Kennedy televised debates that on paper, or if you were just listening on the radio, that everyone felt that Nixon had won the debate because he had the content. But if you watched it on TV, you saw that Kennedy had won the debate because Kennedy looked calm and cool and was not sweating like a pig, like Nixon and looking uncomfortable. Last night, if you were watching the debate, I'd say Obama lost. His body language was off. He looked he didn't look calm and presidential. That's what people said he looked like. But I think he just looked tired and like, what the fuck? Like, who the fuck is this Romney guy? Because Romney came out and did this thing called the Gish Gallup. Check it out. Wikipedia, that bitch. Gish Gallup. G-I-S-H. It's this thing. I read this article about it today where it's it's a tactic in a debate where you throw all these topics out really, really high energy. You just throw a bunch of different uh, disparate things out. Doesn't really matter, which is exactly what Romney did. Some of them were truth. A lot of them were lies. They were totally twisting things. And the thing was, was that Obama's strategy was to 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 tell his platform, to tell what he would do for the people. So he wasn't going to rebut every single thing that Romney said. So therefore, it made it look like that he was just taking it up the you know what for Mr. Romney. But if you read the transcript of the debate, you would think that Obama had won because he was very straightforward with his facts and he laid out his plan, whereas Romney was like, I don't know, the Tasmanian devil on Adderall or something like that. He was crazy. Uh, so, uh, uh, it, you know, you know, we all know that both these parties are fucked and we're fucked by both these parties. We get that big money in, in politics is just screwing democracy every which way. Uh, but like I have said before, this election is not about who's going to be president 
like the guy in the office. It's going to be about who's going to fucking pick the Supreme Court justices that are going to be on the bench for the next 20 years. And personally, I just don't want Romney and Ryan picking those people. I'd much rather have Obama and Biden picking those people. I'm sorry, just for the social issues um, alone. So if you're on the fence or if you've decided to sleep this one through and not vote because you're sickened by the system, I get it. I get it. My dad didn't vote. I get it. I get it. I get it. But please, please, for the rest of us, for all the young girls who make the mistake and need to have access to health care in the future, for uh, gay rights, uh, please, uh, for environmental issues, please, uh, for all civil rights issues, please, for, you know, trying to have some semblance of balance of the rich versus the middle and the working class, please, please vote Democrat so that we can have some decent human beings on the Supreme Court to battle the men who are not very nice. I don't think I don't like those men. They're not very nice at all. I wouldn't invite them to my party. In fact, maybe I'll have Gallagher go on their show. Maybe that's what I'll do. All right, folks, we're going to listen to some music and we're going to come back with a guest. I have a really cool guest today. This is John Fugelsang's brother, Paul Fugelsang. Yes, there are two Fugelsangs in the world. Can you imagine? Uh, Paul Fugelsang is a therapist and he's starting this really, really cool thing called the Open Path Counseling Collective. First of all, anything with the word collective in it, I'm in. Being a Jungian, love the word collective. I don't know. I'm just a sap for it. But this is a nonprofit to help people who are of a middle income get free mental health care. Because people of a lower income have access through access through through, through Medicaid and through the state and stuff like that. And they can they can actually be eligible for it. And then people who have money can just go and get mental health therapy. But there's a lot of people in the middle who are falling through the cracks and there's a lot of anxiety and depression and God forbid other scarier things like schizophrenia and bipolar and all that kind of stuff out there. And so this gentleman is uh He's kind of doing a Kickstarter type campaign to to raise some initial money to open that up. So we're going to talk to him and all about his project uh, when we come back. But before that, we're going to play another John Elliott's tune, which is <laughs> kind of fitting. The name of the song is I Am Unemployed. Well, we're working on it. Something better. I was wrong. I got your letter and I didn't read it. Cause I knew what it said For two years now I bet it all on strangers Rattled cages Carried away My stomach hurts My friends are gone Or dead <laughs> And Prospects. I ain't got no prospects. I ain't got no prospects anymore. I ain't got no prospects. I 
might be sick And I know that you can't get disease from love And then I went to a therapist And he told me you're in trouble now And he told me you should take these special drugs Kelly Carlin, and you're listening to Waking from the American Dream. Yes, it's like a real radio station, except for the fact that the door just bonged the uh, 
<laughs> the door just bonged uh, the uh, Tibetan bell that I have out there. That was another John Elliott song called I Am Unemployed, uh, which is a lovely segue into uh, my guest here, um, Paul Fugelsang, who is someone who is uh, trying to, not trying to, w- will succeed in creating something called the Open Path Counseling Collective. And it's really an honor to have him here because I'm very good friends with his brother, Mr. John Fugelsang. So uh, welcome, Paul. Welcome to the show. Hi, Kelly. Thanks so much. It's my pleasure to have you on. Uh, Paul um, emailed me yesterday, sent me this link to this thing, and I was just like, wow, I'm really blown away by this. And uh, really, I was really, really inspired by this. Um, first of all, let's. I just want to know a little bit more about you and what brought you to become a therapist. What led you there, and uh, and where you you know where you got your training. What kind of your your path your your open path was about? Sure, sure. Well, for whatever reason, uh, in my past, by the time I was in my early twenties, I found myself uh, working in in helping professions. I was, uh, was consistently getting jobs that involved working with people in some sort of uh, compassion endeavor. And um, after a while of doing that, I kept feeling suspiciously undertrained. Like my heart was maybe in the right place, but I didn't really know what I was doing, and I felt like I was probably getting in my own way and, and maybe not doing a lot of good in the process at times. Um, so I decided to get more training, and psychotherapy seemed like the um, uh, the most appropriate avenue for where I was headed. And uh, at the time, I was living in Boulder, Colorado, so I was very familiar with Naropa University, uh, which is the only fully accredited Buddhist university in the country, and they have amazing graduate programs in psychotherapy. Yes, uh, I I love Naropa. Uh, Naropa was founded by. Hold on, wait, tell me who was it? Who was the people? The main people that? Well, it was Troyam Trumpa. Did he he founded it? Troyam Trumpa. Yes, yeah. yeah. Good old Troyam Trumpa. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, an, an interesting, colorful individual for sure. And are you a practicing Buddhist? Uh, I don't identify as such philosophically. It's right in line with the way that I live my life and I do have a sitting practice. So um, I think that's probably the way um, uh, most Buddhists feel is, you know, we're not into isms at all. So, you know, one of the first thing you do is even give up the dogma of that. So I, uh-huh. I think I'm pretty much right up there with you. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, so at Naropa, um, it, did you get a, a master's or a, a doctorate there? I got a master's, and uh, my program was called Contemplative Psychotherapy. Oh, beautiful. That makes me yeah. think of, of Mark Epstein, uh, who, uh-huh. uh, who yeah, writes a lot about the, 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 the joining of, of contemplative meditation and, and psychotherapy. So, yeah, he was in Europa. He was at Europa in the 70s. Oh, okay. Well, that makes sense then, huh? <laughs> yeah. So, mm-hmm. what, um, so what led you... What need did you see out in the world and decided to, you know, how, how did this idea for Open Path Counseling Collective start, and, and, and what's the vision for it? Well, I'll tell you the vision first, and then I'll, and then I'll back up from there. Sure. The idea is to create a, a nationwide collective of mental health practitioners who are in private practice who all agree to see one or two low-fee paying clients a week. Mm. Uh, from there, we would become the middle entity between people who are 
looking for low-fee therapy and therapists who are willing to offer it. The idea, in its essence, in the beginning at least, is to find 50 therapists in 50 states uh, to do this work. And when you look at that, we'd be looking at doing 2,500 sessions a week of low-fee therapy, um, uh, which is over 100000 a year. Um, now, this isn't necessarily money that people are saving because folks who need it, who don't have the money for it, don't get it. Mm-hmm. So these 100,000 hours are, are, are hours spent for people doing therapy who otherwise would be sitting at home with whatever their problems are and, uh, and most likely handling them all by themselves. Yeah. And, and I, 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 you know, at first I was kind of taken aback by, you know, how in the description you talk about these, you know, these middle class people who really are stuck in the middle because they don't qualify or or they're not eligible for state run programs, uh, which I'm sure are Mm -hmm. completely overwhelmed as they are. And, right. and of course, they don't have the cash on hand to actually <laughs> pay for their own therapy. And it's, it's this really fascinating place where, you know, it feels like we've come to, and I, you know, it's been building for decades, I feel, but there is this class that's slowly being eroded where these people cannot fend for themselves and do need extra support. And, uh, and it's just it's just such a comment, I think, of the times. Yes, yeah, for sure. In so many areas of um, where we need a social safety net for people, mental health being one of them. And because it's an area that I know about, it feels like this is a place where I can I can get in there and and, and do something to shake it up. So many people have insurance, but so many of those people are underinsured. So they have a plan where maybe they have a five thousand dollar deductible. Um, so the idea of going out and spending $130 on a weekly psychotherapy session until they meet their deductible, likewise, isn't really feasible. People are saving that money for uh, medical emergencies. And then in the process, mental health falls through the cracks. And, of course, we know that people with poor mental health more often suffer, eventually suffer medical emergencies. Yep, a- absolutely, absolutely. And, and you know, I, I feel the way that the state of the world, I mean, I went to Pacifica Graduate Institute, so I have a, uh-huh. a, a Jungian bent to my, uh, to my training, and the motto of Pacifica is tending soul of the world. And, and one of the things we talk about uh, from our, from the depth perspective, which I'm sure you're familiar about, is just that, uh-huh. you know, the sickness of the world, um, people in, you know, individualize that sickness, you know, the world is, in crisis and mm-hmm. and actually is 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 more of the problem and yet we're we're absorbing all of that and and we're kind of you know we feel mentally ill we feel crazy by it and yet um the world is crazy right now and and actually in some ways if you're not anxious or depressed um <laughs> something might be wrong with you <laughs> 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 and, and so I, I always felt as a practitioner when I was a therapist was that part of my job was to normalize yes. some of these feelings that, fuck, man, the world is insane. And you have every right to be going, holy shit, what is going on here? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it is absolutely a shared experience. And you're right. People don't realize that because we, we, live, in, we, we live in this insular world and we have these minds that think that this is only happening to us. And it's hard to... It's hard to remove ourselves out of that unless we have someone help us see that. Absolutely. Um, how long have you been practicing? I've been practicing for 10 years now. 
Oh, wow. And have you yeah. seen a, a trend in your clients in, in what kind of stuff they're, they're coming in with? I mean, b- because, I mean, the last 10 years has been really very crazy kind of 10 years. And have, have you, have yes, you, so much has shifted. Yeah. Tell me a little bit about what have you been noticing about that? Well, a lot of the work that I do, a lot of the approach that I, um, that I go from is a biological approach, uh, looking at how the nervous system works. Um, in other words, the nervous system is a part of our body that, that regulates how we're feeling, um, whether or not we're revved up or whether or not we are um, slowing down. And uh, Normally throughout our day, we rev up, we slow down, we rev up, we slow down. It's part of the natural process. What happens is when people's nervous systems get out of, um, get out of sync, uh, people start revving up really high or they start ramping down really, really low. And what I'm finding is that this is ha- it feels like this is happening more and more, that there are more people coming in with what I would call dysregulated nervous systems. And they feel horrible. They either feel like they're, they have this anxiety that's making them pull their hair out, or they feel so lethargic they don't know what to do. Um, unfortunately, when people feel that way, they tend to pathologize themselves. And one thing that I try to work with people on is looking at it from a biological perspective. There's nothing wrong with your mind. And, and who you are, there's nothing sewn into your soul that is um, uh, that speaks to sickness. It's just that your nervous system needs to be reset. So that's what I find that I'm finding more and more often in my practice is that people are coming in either really, really ramped up or really, really um, leveled off. Mm, yeah, yeah. I, I, you know, I, one of the things I, I talk about on this show a lot is. Um, is the, the, the quickening pace of life. And I mean, it's been happening for decades, but this social media world that we live in where, um, and, and email and cell phones, it's like there's no, I mean, we, I, 20 years ago, we had a hard time slowing down and taking time for things. Uh, nowadays, nothing is inviting you to do that. Um, right. yeah. And, and so do you, uh, integrate, um, any sort of practices with your clients to, bes- besides normal therapeutic, you know, of following normal therapeutic stuff? Um, do you, uh, do you teach people, is there, is there mindfulness training that goes with this or anything like that to, to help with the, the nervous system and it's being out of sync and out of whack? Yeah, it's actually, it's funny that you say this. I, I saw recently in, in Tricycle Magazine a headline that said, um, don't just do something, sit there. <laughs> and it felt, wow, it's it felt absolutely refreshing to, uh, to, to read something like that. Um, so in my, in my practice, I try to work with people uh, from a mindfulness-based perspective. Uh, and a lot of that is it's just encouraging people to be curious about their own experience. Um, what is this like for you? What are you noticing in your body when this happens? So often our body is giving us a world of information about how we're feeling or how we're responding to stress, but it's usually not very pleasant feeling, so we tend to run away from sensations in our body quite a bit. Um, so a lot of the work that I try to do with people is to help them slow down and actually check in with their body and see that they, actually, they can tolerate uncomfortable feelings or, or tolerate discomfort in their body and their minds. Um, once people can get a handle on that and realize that, um, that it's actually possible to be with themselves in the moment, it typically becomes easier not to have to disappear into the Internet um, as often as you can to escape that stress or escape that busy mind. Mm. That makes sense. Uh, absolutely, I think uh, you know. You said the word tolerance. Um, that is such a key in 
learning, I mean, just learning how to be with yourself. I mean, that's the scariest thing. I mean, the very first time I went on a meditation retreat, and I'd never done any sitting meditation, and I went to a Thich Nhat Hanh five-day retreat, and I was terrified at the thought of uh-huh. even sitting down for 10 minutes in silence. Oh, yeah. I thought, okay, at oh, least yeah. I have my car keys. I can always just run to my car <laughs> and drive away. Uh-huh. And, uh-huh. and you know, you, I talk to, um, I do some meditation teaching and I do some women's group myself. I, I've been a practicing, uh, meditator for 15 years now. And, uh, I talk to people sometimes about, you know, mindfulness training and, and silent meditation and sitting meditation and some, the look of terror on people's yeah. faces when you bring it up as something. Oh, I couldn't do that. I I'd be quiet for, I mean, what do you mean? Like, and it's, it's, yeah. I mean, it's almost like, I mean, don't you wish that we could just teach kids starting in kindergarten how to do this stuff? I do, I do, and 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 thankfully, I I think that there's this whole thing that's also occurring alongside the internet, um, where we are creating communities of people who are developing wider consciousness, and um, and these ideas are really extending out into our society more and more, and there are more and more programs being set up in schools um, at very early ages for younger kids um, to work on these things. And just do really simple things about being aware of the present moment and what's occurring. And um, and that's part of the heartening thing about what's going on in society right now is that um, there is also this trend towards greater awareness of our experience. Yeah, absolutely. And the cool thing is, is that we have brain science on our side. And the big, Mm -hmm, the big, yeah, the big research institutions and universities have been doing some amazing work the last 10, 15 years on this stuff. And, uh, you look at like John Cabot Zinn and, you know, doing uh, big mindfulness programs out of Boston University, Boston Mm -hmm. Hospital and stuff. It's very exciting because the proof is in the brain, people. Your brain will actually really does respond incredibly well to this work. It really does work. Yeah, well, so much of the information coming out of brain scans completely validates uh, 2,500-year-old ideas from Buddhism (laughs) and how the mind works. Yeah, that Buddha. And it's really quite wonderful that those two groups have found one another because um, they both get it, and they're both getting each other and, and teaching each other. It's a beautiful thing, and and you know, I think one of the greatest things is, you know, the Dalai Lama really took uh, a, an incredible leadership role in this, and is very fascinated by Western science. I mean, he's I think one of mm-hmm. the only national, uh, you know, a global religious leaders who really embraces uh, the understanding of science and understands that, you know, you can interpret ancient wisdom through the tools and understanding and knowledge of the present day. Um, how ref- how refreshing. <laughs> yes. Yeah, there's that story about the, the someone questioned him, well, what would happen if, if neuroscience actually disproved a key tenet of Buddhist philosophy? And his answer was something like, well, we would revise. <laughs> yeah. We would listen to what science says, and we would revise our beliefs about this thing. Amazing. And, uh, yeah. Yeah. Very refreshing. Uh, absolutely, absolutely. And to your earlier point about the intensity of of, of sitting and, and and being quiet with oneself, um, in my graduate program at Naropa, we, we did quite a bit of sitting meditation. Each each semester, we would have to uh, we'd go away on a meditation retreat for a full month, and um, or each year, I should say. And I have these uh, friends in other graduate programs who would say, "Wow, you're so lucky. You get to go." sit in the mountains for a month and, and get a master's degree and say, well, it's not quite that simple. Um, 
but Naropa's philosophy around it is, well, if you can tolerate the intensity of your own mind, oh. you can tolerate the intensity of anyone's mind. Wow. So why wouldn't we do this in, in training for how to be a therapist? Wow. That is, that is profound and just gave me chills because that is so very true. Um, yes. I mean, because one of the biggest things about becoming a therapist is certainly – well, that very thing, and they call it self-management in the world of therapy, but, you know, being able to, first of all, suss out what is your shit versus what is your client's mm-hmm. stuff mm-hmm. and, and, and all the triggers that we go through as clinicians and counselors and, and any kind of the healing arts like that, you know, you get stuff projected onto you. Your own psyche wants to go off and find stuff to, you know, bond with. And, uh, and that's, uh-huh. and that's such a great point. Because because, you know, it is scary to sit there, especially in those early training years where you're the first time you're sitting across from a client and they come in and they're really depressed and there's some right. really, really dark emotions going on. And if you've, if you haven't sat with your own dark emotions, um, boy, are, you know, you could find a way to really, you know, try to tap dance around that and really ultimately not be there for your client. So. Yes. Completely. And this actually, this brings me back to the collective and the origins of it. Uh, because when I was in graduate school and I was doing my training, I ended up at an internship at a counseling center, a local counseling center for people who couldn't afford uh, therapy. And unfortunately, those people were being seen by interns mm-hmm. like myself. Mm-hmm. And we had good training. However, we hadn't made a lot of the mistakes that you make as a beginning clinician. So we were making them on these people. And I saw... I knew that I was doing it, I saw the absolute economic injustice in this model. So part of my idea with creating a, a, um, this collective is to find people who are already licensed and already experienced so that the people who are on the lower end of the economic scale aren't getting shafted because they're not working with, with skilled clinicians. Wow, that that is a great point. I, I, too, worked at a counseling center where we did low-fee counseling, and we were... Raw, raw, green, green little therapists. Yeah, you gotta make your mistakes, right? <laughs> yeah. It's part of the process. And, and thankfully we, you know, most of us get fantastic supervision and are held deeply right. in that space. But at the same time, yes, it is, it is uh, an economic justice issue. That's, that's very, yeah. that's very fascinating. And, and look what we've done. I mean, we do the best we can in these circumstances. It's like, you know, thankfully there are right. interns who will work for $15 an hour and, and they're Right. At least someone is getting some access to something, but you know the idea of 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 you know asking some of my uh, Jungian psychoanalysts uh, therapists who've got you know twenty twenty five thirty years un- under their belt to be a part of something like that. I mean, how exciting would that be for for them and, and to be of service in this way? I mean, I, I also love it from the clinician's point of view because. You know, uh, you know, a lot of cl- clinicians make a decent living, you know, and they make a, a good living at it. But to be able to be of mm-hmm. service an hour or two a week like that, um, just right. uh, even elevates it, you know, to a whole nother level. I, I, I really love that. Right. And, and, and my, my belief is that, well, I know that there are so many clinicians out there who are already seeing people. Um, for low fees, it's part of their their ethical yes. makeup, yes. part of their their standards as clinicians. However, and I've been doing this as well. When we do this as lone agents in our offices, it's just us working with one person. However, if you join with a collective of people doing this across the entire nation, suddenly you have a movement. 
of people who are saying, actually, this isn't okay that people can't have access to affordable health care, and we want to do something about it. Mm. We want to make a statement. So it kind of takes, it, it takes this philanthropic work to the next level. Yeah. which I'm excited about as well. A- absolutely. It, it that's that's a that's a fabulous point and there's there's something about collective action that I think we're we're just starting to relearn as a culture. Yes. You know, yeah, and we've we've been on the train, we've been on the I train for a long time. <laughs> mm-hmm. And it's time to stop off at the we station. <laughs> <laughs> right, which, which might also be a, a really wonderful uh, benefit of the internet in, in ways that it, that it can bring us together. I so agree with you. I mean, just like everything, there is certainly um, the dark, the dark and the light. And the one thing about social media that's so incredible is that we can come together instantly um, as a collective yeah. and 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 push things in certain directions. And and there is something about you know. Being in a collective that's very inspiring. Uh, I mean, I know that when I get up in the morning and I do some, I don't sit regularly every day, but when I do get up early and sit, one of the things I love thinking about is how many other people on the planet are, mm-hmm. are sitting at that very same time and are just willing mm-hmm. to be sitting with their breath and taking in the moment and um, having access to big mind or, or wherever they're going. And uh, I, I, you know, I find that very inspiring uh, to know that, you know, we're, we're willing to sit in peace uh, for, for the sake of all sentient beings, as they say. Mm. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. So what's your goal here? I, I know you've got a, a website set up here to raise some money. What's the website again? So it's an Indiegogo website, you know, which is like a Kickstarter type thing where people can contribute uh, online. And the, the web address is Indiegogo, and then it's Indiegogo.com backslash OPPC, uh, which is, so it's the uh, Open Path Open Path Psychotherapy Collective. Okay, Psychotherapy Collective. I was calling it the Counseling and Collective Psychotherapy Collective. Okay. And it's Indie, is it I-N-D-I, Go-Go? That's right. Okay. Yeah. Great. Great. Thank you. And so, what's your goal? I know you're you're trying to raise forty thousand dollars. What is this startup money for, and, and how do you, how are you going to utilize it? Well, one of the one of the um, wonderful things about the model I think that I've created is that it will be self sustaining within um, within a year after we launch. So I'm not going to have to be an organization that's consistently fundraising, which is really important for for me on a personal level because it's not where my strengths lie. And it's not really what I want to spend. Uh, the next 20 years doing. Yes. Um, so what we're, we're looking for is just the basic seed money to start up. Um, we have nonprofit status, which is great. Uh, and what we're looking for is $25,000 uh, to start up. And what that 25 will cover is a really sophisticated website, um, which we're going to need um, in order to attract clinicians and clients alike. And then it will cover, cover all of our marketing materials and legal fees to get going. And then this basic startup for, for starting up an office. Fantastic. Uh, yeah, I plan on working on a volunteer basis until we can get enough money coming in where, um, where I can pay myself a salary. But for now, it's enough just to get it up and running. Um, I feel like that's what the most important thing is. And, and how do you envision um, uh, screening clinicians? How is it, there's going to be an interview process or how, how is that going to work? Yeah, it's an excellent question because we really want to make sure that we're getting quality clinicians, um, uh, people who are grounded, 
mm. people who are interested in, in, in working with people in an intimate way um, that isn't, isn't around, that isn't centered around symptom relief or, um, or prescribing medication as a first, as a first option. Yes. Um, so it's very, very important for us that we get skilled people. So um, there'll be uh, an application process uh, um, with a lot of tailored questions designed to try to figure out um, where this clinician is coming from and their own orienting uh, stances. And then there'll be an interview process over the phone. Fantastic. And and what about for for patients or clients, um, people seeking um, some some sort of counseling or therapy? Uh, obviously, you're doing localized stuff. I saw that you do both. Um, you see clients both in an office and you do some uh, telephone counseling. Um, how is that for you? Um, so, yeah, my private practice, I do in person and I do stuff um, on Skype. And um, it's great. It's, I, I don't find it, it's obviously not as, um, what's the word, maybe gratifying. I'm not sure if that's mm-hmm. the right word. Mm-hmm. Um, to, to see someone over Skype as being with the person um, in an office. However, uh, I would say, and I think most of my clients who I see over Skype would agree, after the first few minutes of each session, um, the, the fact that we're looking at each other through screens kind of melts away and the therapeutic relationship takes over. Um, and I found it to be um, quite a seamless process, to be honest. And uh, I have people who I've been seeing on Skype for, for many years. And, um, and uh, yeah, I, I, I get a lot out of it, and I think they do as well. It certainly is, is a great tool that we have at our disposal now because there are people who are geographically isolated from from the clinicians they want to see. So it makes perfect sense. Absolutely. I, um, myself am a, a certified life coach and I do 99% of my coaching over the phone and via, okay. via Skype. And, you know, that, that non-local field stuff they talk about in quantum physics, I, I really, mm-hmm. I really get that when I'm working with a client because, there's even on the phone with them, there's, there's still an intuitive yeah. field that I'm reading into and can name things so precisely. <laughs> and maybe sometimes even being not, I mean, you know, there's something about being a client and being in the clinician's actual presence and then being able to read body language. It's a huge part of the psychodynamic, you know, part yeah. of therapy. Um, and yet there is this other thing that happens where a client maybe is feeling um, more protected because they're on the phone. And yet I'm st- is still, there's still lots of information there to go after. It's, <laughs> it's such an interesting and fascinating thing. I wish somebody would do a study about that and like the understand, is there some sort of entrainment going on between brains or I don't know. I, I just, I'm fascinated by that work and, and I, I don't understand what it means or how it is, but I just know it does. I, I completely agree. And I would likewise like to see that study. Yes. <laughs> we need to get someone on that quick. Let's get the noetic Institute. They do stuff like that. <laughs> <laughs> but, the idea, but the idea for the collective is to have people be seen in, in offices. In offices. Face-to-face. Great, mm-hmm. great. Yeah, so it's going to be online. But the online part would be the, 
essentially the reception area, which is what the nonprofit would be. Yes, love that. Welcoming people in and then directing them to a clinician. Love that, love that. Um, This is very exciting. I'm very inspired by your vision and your ability to step into your vision. Um, I might Thanks, say, Kelly. Yeah, I really, it really just, it, it took me over in some way. And I think because I'm like ready to do something like this in my own life, I don't quite know what it looks like yet. But when I, mm-hmm. it just, there was some sort of resonance about this project. It was like, wow, man, this is really, this is, you know, it's, it's really beautiful because it holds just so much. It holds stuff for you. It holds stuff for the potential of healing in the world. And, um, and you're giving a, a, a great opportunity for people to be of service and to, to receive service. And, you know, it's, it's just, it's exactly what the world, you know, needs more of in, in this day, in day and age, you know, is us to, to step away from this holy shit. We're all going down the tr- circling the drain thing to, you know, so what can I do to help here? What can I do to ease, yeah. ease things? I completely agree. I completely agree. And, um, and I'm very fortunate that there are people out there who also are making this happen for me. I'm working with a foundation right now called the Foundation for Excellence in Mental Health Care. Um, and they're the ones who have given me the 501c3 status and who really believe in this project as well. Um, so I'm very grateful that a lot of a lot of forces are coming together to make this work. Well, fantastic. And I wish you all the luck. And out there, listeners, do what you can to support uh, this incredible vision. Um, uh, we've all had mental health issues. If you have someone in your family or yourself, you, you know what that's like. Maybe you're the person who's in need right now. Maybe you're a clinician who, who, who understands this and is excited about this idea too. Maybe you're a billionaire listening in and just, you know, can write a check to Paul right now. <laughs> just get it done, people. Boom. Uh, so I, 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 I can't wait to, to watch your progress and to watch how this unfolds and, uh, Thank would, you. Would love to spread the word with the amazing clinicians that I have here in Southern California and Santa Barbara and Northern California that I know and, uh, and make some networking connections for you. And, uh, and I just want to say your lovely parents, boy, popped out some really beautiful children. <laughs> oh, that's very. Very nice. You fugal sayings are, are good eggs. <laughs> <laughs> I imagine the same would be said of your... Ah, uh, uh, well, I, I always say I was raised by wolves, but that's not true, really. <laughs> <laughs> Well, everyone, please go to Indiegogo, I-N-D-I-G-O-G-O dot com forward slash O-P-P-C. Check out uh, Paul's vision. Donate some money. Uh and, uh, and hey, why not do 10 minutes of sitting meditation tonight, people? You can do it. Just breathe a little. Sit on a cushion. Sit on your chair. Notice your breath. Notice the gurgling in your stomach and notice your monkey mind. It's quite entertaining. <laughs> Kelly, I just want to, I just want to say because you, I, you left the E off of it. I think it's I-N-D-I-E. Oh, it is I, like indie, like the indie film thing. Okay. Thank you. dot com. OPPC. Yeah. Fabulous. All right, Mr. Fugel Sang. You have a, have a beautiful weekend and, uh, let's, uh, let's stay in touch and I'd like to hear more about your progress. All right. Will do, Kelly. Thanks so much for this opportunity. It's been such a pleasure talking with you. My pleasure. Thank you. Have a great night. Okay. Bye. So that was, uh, John Fugelsang's brother. How funny is that? That's so cool. Uh, with this amazing vision. 
for this amazing work. And, uh, just, uh, I'm just, I don't know what it is. There's something about this that's so inspiring to me. I've, you know, I always wish I was a billionaire so I could make some like big philanthropic foundation or something. You know, I saw those, um, the, um, MacArthur Genius Grants came out this week. And not only do I wish I was a genius and could do that, that would be cool, but to, to be able to bestow that on, you know, however many people they do each year and just, you know, obscure artists and here's a hundred thousand dollars for the next, I don't know how it's like two or three years or something. It's just, it's an insane amount of money and they just give them to do whatever you want with it. Whatever you need to need it for living expenses, do that, do it, put it in your art project, whatever you want. But we want to just support your vision as an artist and, and the work you're doing in the world. Oh God, that's just so inspiring. Um, uh, yeah. So anyway, I, I, you know, I do what I can. I just gave a lovely homeless man in front of Starbucks, $5. <laughs> I do my part. Uh, fantastic. Uh, we're going to have a little, uh, I think we're going to go to a little comedy. God, I wish I had some Fugelsang comedy lined up here, but I don't. Fuck shit cunt. Ah, oh, such a bad girl. I just said that word. Uh, so instead, I think we're just going to do, go to a little, um, uh, oh, we'll just, you know, we'll do, uh, we'll do a little, uh, Dylan Brody. Those of you familiar with my work will know that many, and really, who isn't? <laughs> many of my stories can be lengthy and heavy and multi-textured shades of gray, like the prominent proboscis of the ponderous pachyderm. This first piece, to maintain the mammalian metaphor, is little more than a bit or two of gerbil fuzz, a beat or two of verbal jazz. It is a twist of the wit, a trick of the tongue, a tantalizing taste of linguistic terpsichore. It is a, a pithy parcel of prosodic prestidigitation, if you will. And if you won't, you're a bunch of anti-semantic bastards. <laughs> I like to support the arts. On my way home, I stopped at a convenience store to buy milk for my morning coffee, ice cream for my wife. On the way in, I was approached by an unemployed magician. He had the haunted eyes of a hungry hound. He said, I got a quarter in my pocket. I can make it disappear. I got a quarter in my pocket. I can make it disappear. I said, show me. I swear to you, all he did was snap his fingers. He said, it's gone. I said, where did it go? He said, check your pocket. I checked my pocket, and sure enough, there, amongst all my other loose change... A bright, shiny quarter. I said, how do I know this is yours? He said, check the date. I said, it's from 1994. He said, that's mine. I returned it to him. I said, show me again. He said, I never repeat myself. I never repeat myself. I said, show me another. He said, I will need a $10 bill. I said, all I have is a 20. He said, that will do. I handed him a $20 bill. He folded it up tight right in front of me. No abracazam, no alacadabra. When he unfolded it again, it was a five. He returned it to me. I said, that's amazing. Change it back. He said, if I could change fives into twenties, I wouldn't be out here working for tips. I said, I'm sorry, I didn't know I was supposed to tip you. I like to support the arts. I gave him the five. <laughs> he thanked me for my patronage. I went into the convenience store. I bought milk for my morning coffee. I bought ice cream for my wife. As I came back out, 
He was approaching another man in the parking lot. He said, I got a quarter in my pocket. I can make it disappear. I got a quarter in my pocket. I can make it disappear. I watched him with the hungry eyes of a hunting hawk. And I swear to you, ladies and gentlemen, all he did was snap his fingers. Thank you. <laughs> that was Dylan Brody from his last album. Uh, love the Dylan Brody. Um, so uh, I'm taking calls now. If you guys want to call in, the number is 323-473-3112. Pretty sure that's my number here. That's my Skype number. It's very exciting. I'm even going to plug in my Skype right now. Hold on, hold on, hold on. Holding on. Okay. Uh, so, um, it's six o'clock. Uh, I've got about, you know, 20, 25 minutes to kill. Would love to talk to my listeners. If anyone's listening live, the number is 323-473-3112. And, uh, instead of that, um, until someone calls, uh, I'm going to do a little reading of something that I've, uh, just started working on. Um, Hold on here. Uh, I'm looking for it in my computer. Oh, dear. I don't think I have it. <laughs> Isn't that funny? I just love life so much. It's so much fun. Um, so anyway, I was loving what Paul was saying because, uh, first of all, he was talking about mindfulness meditation. And some people don't know what that is or what that's all about. And uh, about 15 years ago, uh, my mom died 15 years ago in 1997 in June and uh, actually in May, she died on Mother's Day. It was a lovely day. Uh, and I had always been fascinated with Zen Buddhism and didn't read books about it and everything like that, but just was really fascinated, but had never meditated for even five seconds in my life. I, basically, I was a person who had panic attack syndrome. My body scared the hell out of me and my mind scared me even more. So the idea of sitting still and having to feel all of that stuff voluntarily was seemed like an act of insanity to me and my mind it was like what's creating this in my mind if my mind is this fucked up and is creating this stuff i don't want to know it but and yet mm, um you know it's it's i was called to it in some way and uh <laughs> so i decided to sign up for a tick not han retreat now, Thich Nhat Hanh is this uh, Vietnamese Zen master. He had been exiled by the Vietnamese government because during the war in Vietnam, he and his monks and nuns and his monastery. Um, oh, wait, I have a call. We're going to go. Hold on. Hold on. Holding on. Holding on. We have a call. I'm so excited. Hold on here. Holding on. Hello. Yes. Who's this? Uh, is this Kelly? This is Kelly. Who's this? Uh, this is Tony in Tampa, Florida. Tony in Tampa, Florida. Hey, how are you doing? I wish I had like a little whistle or a funny little morning zoo noise to make for you. Woo! Or something like that. <laughs> what? I'm doing great. Good. What's up? What's are... up tonight? What's uh, what's uh, what's on your well, mind? I have a question I've been dying to ask you. Do you mind taking questions about your dad? You know, I as long as I can answer them, I I don't mind at all. We'll we'll see what your it's question something... is. Something I've always wondered, when your father was first on TV, he was really wacky, the weatherman and all that stuff. It was, you know, slapstick and very light stuff. And then all of a sudden he got real serious and his comedy was about serious life questions. I mean, and he got very profound and very philosophical. Uh, how? What caused him to make that transition from being kind of 
the wonderful wino weatherman to, to talking about very serious things. Well, I, I wouldn't say he all of a sudden became that. I mean, I think that was a, a long, slow evolution because this is a man who could talk seriously uh, and very forcefully about the big issues of the world and then have a whole segment of his show be fart jokes, you know. So he, I think he always had the goofy in him. But really, the, the first thing that initiated that change uh, from the inside to the outside was, was he dropped acid. And in 1969, he took a lot of acid and it changed his consciousness. And here's the thing about him. If, if you read his, he's, we have a memoir out called Last Words that is based on interviews he did with Tony Hendra for 10 years. And he, he talks a little bit about that. Um, he was always on the inside more like the people of the counterculture of the 60s. I mean, he was hanging out down in Greenwich Village with the hippies and with the folksies and all those people. He was those people, but on the outside, he looked like the straight guy who was doing voices and characters and all that kind of stuff. And because he really wanted a career in television and movies, he really thought that was his path. And then he took acid and realized he could not live the lie anymore, that he wanted to be on the outside who he was on the inside. And so he started talking about bigger issues, political issues, philosophical issues. He talked about the, you know, religion, you know, class clown, all that kind of stuff. But he was still doing silly stuff. He was still doing Rice Krispie jokes and, and, you know, snap, crackle, fuck you and all that stuff. Uh, so, and then, of course, as he aged and got older and got into his 50s, you know, I think in your 50s, uh, and it's something I think I was talking about earlier, you start to like get like, oh, okay, I've done all the kind of beginner stuff. Now, what's the what's the advanced level of life? Like, what am I really going for? And he was really ready. He, he no longer cared about approval from people. He just wanted to talk about what he wanted to talk about. And luckily, a lot of people wanted to hear it. So I think that was the overall arcing of his career. But still, remember, he is a man ultimately who wanted to make you laugh and could do, like I said, walking segmented fart jokes and um, <laughs> be really silly. And he, was, he was one of the greatest, greatest comedians of all, all time. Uh, and I got to meet him in New York in 1967, and he was had short hair, yep. and he was wearing a suit. And he actually seemed a little shy. He was. And, he was uh, introverted in person. He was a little bit of a had a little bit of social anxiety. Yes. And, and uh, you know, and and then all of a sudden he just like grew on earth. And the guy that uh, I saw ten years later was nothing <laughs> like the guy that that uh, you know. Uh, I have one more quick question. Sure. Do we have time? Yes, of course. Uh, what What is it like, like being in a house and living with a guy like George Carlin? I mean, you were his daughter. Uh, I know. I saw a picture of you in the kitchen with him on Facebook. <laughs> yes. And, and uh, I thought that was really cool. I mean, was he was he crazy at home too? Yeah. You know, it's funny. All this stuff, you know, we do with people we admire like that or celebrities is, you know, we, we think we suddenly make them not human in some ways. And yet he was just my dad. First of all, he was just a human. He put his pants on one leg at a time, like everyone else. And, um, and he wasn't, um, he wasn't a person who needed to be on all the time. He didn't have to be the comedian in the kitchen. Yes. We had a lot of fun. We were goofy family. We laughed a lot. There was a lot of joy in that. Um, but like you said, he was also a little bit of a social introvert and a little shy and very much 
obsessed with his work, uh, you know, I kind of really got that, and especially the later years that, you know, my dad was like one of those obsessed painters, like I think like Picasso or someone like that, you know, like, I must go paint blue paintings now. And there was nothing stopping him. So my dad spent a lot of time actually in his office working. And, uh, but no, he, I mean, the crazy stuff came during the drug years, which was really crazy in my house, but that was a temporary situation. And that wasn't really who my parents were, but, um, but he was, he was a fun guy and yet didn't, didn't, you know, wasn't one of those guys who was like, Hey, you gotta be the center of the tension all the time. Thank God. <laughs> I just want to thank you so very much for allowing me to ask this. Uh, you probably get asked a lot about him and, uh, uh, these are questions that I've wondered for many, many years and I just feel so lucky to be able to finally ask you. And I also feel lucky that you're my friend on Facebook. And I am very, very grateful that you were kind enough to let me in the family. Uh, Well, my pleasure. My pleasure. And uh, thank you for calling. One one more more quick question is, are you going to continue doing your, your shows? I, I, I am. I'm actually, we're just, I mean, I know I've been saying this all year, but we're like really trying to get organized and actually get like tours going where I go out on weekends and do two or three nights in a city at a nice small theater. So I will be traveling around the country next year. What, what would it take you to take to get you to come to Tampa? You know, Florida is a great place because there's a mini tour there. There's about five different cities in Florida that you can hit that really have their own markets. And so we'll be looking for Florida and, uh, It'll happen. Tampa was a place my dad went to. He loved doing Florida gigs. He did. Uh, he did New Year's Eve one year and uh, went to see him. Yes, and so I know that Carlin fans are in Florida waiting, uh, very pol- you know politely with their hands on their laps, waiting for me to come down and tell the stories of my lovely, loving crazy, beautiful life with my parents. And uh, so just you keep checking me out on Facebook and all that. And eventually it'll say, hey, Tampa, I'm coming your way. Thank you so much. And you have a great evening. You too, darling. Have a great one. Bye now. Bye bye. Oh, sweet little Tony from Tampa. That was great. I love people who call. I love connecting with people. That was very, very nice. And no, I don't mind answering questions about my dad, but I, um, uh, don't know everything <laughs> by any stretch of the imagination. But having to have done my show now, now I kind of know like about the evolution of his career. Certainly I've thought about that. So anyway, my story, when we last left Kelly, she was just dealing with her mother's grief of her mother's death and yet thinking she should go on a Buddhist retreat with 15 other people in Santa Barbara. Oh, let me add the fact also that because I'd had panic attack syndrome, I did not drive my car many places. I I was okay with, I lived in the west side of LA, going west side. The valley was a little shaky for me still. But the thought of driving myself to Santa Barbara, I had not driven to Santa Barbara by myself in years. I had not driven that far in over 10 years by myself. So that was a crazy thing. So A, driving to Santa Barbara, B, going to a retreat with 1,500 other people where I'd have to like share a room with a stranger and then sit on a cushion and do sitting meditation, silent sitting meditation. I I was so terrified and yet so excited to do it. So I went off on this retreat. And first of all, I don't do groups. I don't do groups. I don't do cults. I don't I don't do things like that. I don't sign up for shit like that. No, thank you. So it was like, oh, and I don't, these people are going to, they're worshiping this guy, this Thich Nhat Hanh guy, who was this amazing guy, which I was going to explain. He got kicked out of Vietnam because his people 
he um, went and like did medical care for people on both sides of the war. So, of course, the Viet Cong accused him of being on the side of the South and then the South accused him of being on the Viet Cong. So n- n- both sides didn't like them because they wouldn't take a side. Isn't that interesting how we can't handle that in our culture? So he got kicked out of Vietnam. So um, so I go up to Santa Barbara, 1,500 people, and I've already got like this attitude like, Ugh, these people are going to be like worshipy and it's all la la woo woo shit and all this kind of stuff. So I go and it's like there's an oh and Tiknot Owen does like all this singing kind of stuff. Breathing in, breathing out. It's like day camp for meditators or something. It's hysterical. And I'm like, okay, I'm like, okay, I'm going to try to sign up for a little bit of this because I want to get the benefit of it. So I go first night, I have to eat, um, all vegetarian food. Oh, we have another caller. Hold on. This can, this this story will continue. Hold on. Hello, welcome to Waking from the American Dream with Kelly Carlin. Who's this? This is Jason Escape. <gasps> Jason Escape. Hello. Hi, Jason from Boston. How's Boston? I'm not from Boston though. You know I'm a New Yorker though. But uh, Boston is great. I know you live in the Boston area though. I do. I live downtown in Boston. You do. It's it's. It's rainy and beautiful and fall-like. Oh, it's New England and it's fall-like. We're a little jealous here in Southern California. Everyone, this is Jason Escape. If you don't know Jason Escape, A, that is his Twitter name. And Jason is an amazing Houdini-like entertainer who puts himself into precarious situations with all sorts of, what, boxes, ropes, devices, hanging yourself upside down and escapes from them. Is that a yeah? Is that a, is that a description of what you do? That's that's surely a, a description of what I do. Yeah, that's um, <laughs> that's a good one. You just summed it up quite nicely. You know, specifically, I, those are a few things that I do. <laughs> Hanging upside down in a straitjacket seems to be the number one uh, vehicle for me to perform my jokes and my show. And, you know, I get to do that a lot. It is, I do a lot of comedy, so it's not just, exactly. you know. Exactly. You know, yeah. You, um, are, you are a well-rounded entertainer. Not only are you sus- literally suspended, uh, but you are also uh, helping us suspend reality by making us laugh. This is true. Excellent. Beautifully said, Kelly. Why, thank so, you. So, hello. I mean, this is not just about me. I just wanted to say hi to you guys. And what's going on out there? How, how's the show? What's things, going on? things are going well. We had a lovely conversation with Paul Fugelsang, and I was just uh, waiting for callers to call in. And uh, is there anything in particular you want to talk about today? Let's, let's, let's chew on something. What's, uh, what's going on in the world? You know, let's think about it. Oh, man. You know... You know, because, you know, you're so tapped into that, to the comedy world, so tapped into the comedy world. Um, I've been just enjoying Louis C.K. so much. Um, his last show at the oh. Beacon Theater. Ah, yes. Just so fantastic. And, of course, as far as a business model, you know, it's just amazing what he's doing. Um, and, you know, that I think the reason why the material is so good is because there's no one in a suit telling him, no, you can't, we're cutting this, and this is not going to work. And it, it was completely put out, you know, by him, edited by him, and put out on a website. And he put it in the simplest format, and he even says on his website, when you purchase it for $5, by the way, yes. he, says, he, he says, you can steal this. Yeah, please don't. <laughs> yeah, exactly. He says, I've been, I've been, 
I've been warned not to do it in this format, but I wanted to, and yeah. just, you know, please don't. It's you know, don't steal it. Yeah, I, and I was so I don't do that anyway, but it was great. Yeah, I, there's something about what he's up to, and I so hope I get a chance to sit down with him and have an interview with him because I'm so interested in his own personal evolution, and because he feels like a person who's really embodying himself and really trusts his voice as a comedian and trusts his like inner GPS, um, you know, ethically and, and what's right. He just, he's so inspiring on so many levels. Um, and I just watched the last episode of Louie for this season last night. Have you seen it, Logan? Seen it. Oh, oh my God. The season. Have you seen it, Jason? This, uh, the whole episode? No, you know, I, I, I have, I will be honest that I, have not watched the show for the only reason is that I'm very obsessive about shows. Ah, uh, this and is I what I don't have the time. Uh, this to, is to do it right now. I have to take the time and I can't. Yeah, I can't do it. I have so, a baby now. I can't. I got to take time, so I'm going to wait on that. Yeah, when you have the time, though, you will be very, very, very happy because it is the oh, best eesh. half hour on television. He's writing and directing these episodes. He used to edit them mm-hmm. also. He went to right. he went to FX and said, I want complete and total creative control. Nobody has any fingerprints on any of these things. And they're mini films is what they are. And once again, last night I watched the, the season finale and he just fucking blew me away again. Wow. And yeah. uh, I, I'm just, I'm so... Um, when I see anything he does in the world, whether it's stand-up or his business model or how he is in the world or his show, I think, I want to be Louis C.K. when I grow up. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He's, he's, he's quite amazing. And, and it's, so, it's so funny that I haven't watched the show. And it's because, literally, I know how much I, – I do that to myself. I, I'll buy a book uh-huh. that I really want to read, and I won't read it for like a month. <laughs> I'll let it sit there, and I'll let it build and build and build, and one day I'll go, and I'll just go. And so that's his show is I've kind of shelved it uh, um, for other things that are going on, because, I, I you think know, you're gonna, everything for me, it's school. It's yeah, like school. Yeah, exactly. And I think you know? you're going to have three three seasons now? Yeah, you're going to have three seasons, Jason, to, like, oh, take wow. in. I think there's, like, ten episodes per season, something like that. He, the other thing yeah. he does on it, which is so fantastic, is he has lots of comics on it um, doing all sorts right. of things. And right. sometimes they play themselves, and sometimes sure. they don't. And uh, this season, I was just, uh, last week, I was helping produce Setlist, and we had Maria Bamford on doing Setlist, which I must tell you was just pure, pure genius. But I said to Maria, oh my God, I loved you on Louie. And she goes, I know, he loves casting his comedy friends in completely opposite types of roles because she plays oh, like right. she plays the comedy club slut who gives him crabs. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, great. And it's just so he, not Maria. It's so funny. It's, but that's so great because that really brings out, oh, that's so incredible that he does the opposite. And yeah. Yeah, it becomes so has to be. It, it's so it's so spontaneous in a way. It's it's, it's not typecast. It, it is, and he and he he invites people. I mean, he had Dane Cook come on, and it was a yeah. really really fascinating episode because you know Dane Cook is just vilified in the comedy world, and he yeah. like he confronted. He wrote out a script, kind of in a confrontational 
scene with Dane and told Dane, I want you to do this, but you can't change a word of the script. If you do it, you have to just agree to do it this way. And Dane Cook did. And I felt like, okay, there's some hope for him. <laughs> I can't wait for yeah. you to see it, Jason. Yeah, well, I, well, I'll be in touch with you now. I really got to watch it. And by the way, I've seen clips of it, of course. Yes. I'm not completely in the dark. I, yeah. I know the format, and I've seen it. You're right. It's beautiful film. It's like a really nice, it's beautiful. And everything I've seen has been amazing. Yeah. Um, you know yeah. what? I'll have to bump that to the top of my list. Absolutely. So bump it up to, to up now, your now queue. You goddamn queue, and then tell your neighbor to have a Kodiak infarction in the parking lot. <laughs> Sorry, that yeah. was, was my very bad Boston That's accent. That's really good. So, you, know, you need to come to the Boston. I, I know. A, I just need to come to Boston because Boston is a fabulous place to be. I love Boston. Yeah. You know uh, what I mean. You know what I mean. I know what you mean. I'm coming. I'm coming that way. Trust me. Trust me, everyone. You yeah, name a city, yeah. and I will come you your way. I'm going to tell my manager. Yeah, People are clamoring, clamoring in Tampa and Boston for me. Let's get something rolling. Oh yeah. East, so, Coast, well, East Coast, come on. East yep, Coast. exactly. East Coast. Yeah. Um, so everyone, please follow Jason on Twitter. It's Jason Escape. And also yeah. Jason runs uh, a fine Carlin uh, account also. Is it you of Carlin? Yeah, you of Carlin. Everything I learned, I learned from George Carlin. <laughs> it's you of Carlin. Which is, and I'm really, uh, I'm... I'm like a Nazi when it comes to, to being correct. <laughs> you are. You're um, very good so at quoting it, and all of that. You're the one person. It kills who, me. Yeah. I think that's it fabulous. I appreciate that. You're the, no, you're the, I don't really don't post that much, but, but I'll do a little more. It's so much fun because everything he has is so great. But of course, I'm limiting it to 140 characters and I don't want to do links to other stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, so, it's fun to no. find the stuff that you can find in 140 characters. I've been doing that yeah, with the, um, still millions of it. With my, of it. Exactly. With the George Carlin uh, account that I run too so well everyone find jason yeah, yeah, jason you're... thanks for calling you're welcome sweetheart all right darling you have a beautiful weekend and uh go you hang too. upside down somewhere <laughs> i will be doing that much this weekend okay beautiful all right bye-bye great that was jason escape that was very cool i'm so glad he called i really like him he and i've known each other for well, a million years on Twitter. That's like, I don't know, three days. No, I'm just kidding. A long time. He's been one of my early Twitter buddies. So I'm just going to finish the story for this, the rest of the show here. We're not taking more calls. So anyway, so I go my first night. I'm like eating this vegetarian meal. I'm there with like 1,200, 1,500 people. I'm thinking, oh, fuck, what the fuck have I done? I've, I, first of all, I drove to Santa Barbara. I'm like, okay, I drove to Santa Barbara. I didn't have a panic attack. Everything else is icing on the cake. So then they say, well, at in the middle, in the morning at 6 a.m., we're all going to do walking meditation on the beach together. And I'm like, oh, not only is it sitting meditation, now it's walking meditation. I have no idea what the fuck this is. But Thich Nhat Hanh is famous for his walking meditation and doing this. I'm like, okay, I've signed up for all of it. We're absolutely going to do walking meditation. So I get up at the crack of fucking ass, Don. I am not a morning person at all. I wake up and um, we... uh I'd say about 200, 300 people gather down at the beach. Not everyone's woken up. Not everyone's a goody two shoes like me. I'm, you know, ready to kiss the Zen master's ass. I'm here for walking meditation. So we start walking down the beach. Now, if for those of you who are not familiar with walking meditation, I wish we had video right now because walking meditation is very, very slow. It's like one step, two step. And it's all about being in the meditative space while walking at the same time. And it's really quite beautiful because you're in your being space while you're doing. It's a really beautiful integration of mind-body. So we're walking down the beach. 
Santa Barbara, where at UCSB, they have a nature sanctuary. Walking down the beach, first of all, look over. There are dolphins in the surf, like six or seven dolphins jumping in the surf. And I'm like, okay, wow, that's cool. Then we take a left turn and we head up towards inland and we're on this path. There's probably two to 400 people and we're on two separate paths walking very slowly, 200 to 400 people. I look over and not 50 feet away, there is a fox hunting, has no idea we're there. We are 200 to 400 people walking. We are being so mindful that this fox is paying no attention to us because we aren't bothering him in any way. He's going about his business. He's a little hole he's staring into. He's hunting. And I think to myself, okay, all right, there's something to this shit. There's definitely something to this shit. So the other cool thing is, so it's like day three, I'm in the zone finally, completely have been sitting, been singing little silly songs, all this kind of stuff. Had a moment during a Thich Nhat Hanh, uh, he, you know, they do talks and everything, and had a moment where I felt like the energy, the transmission of the teacher, that whole thing that happens, happened to me. It was very expanding, very amazing. So one of the things they asked us to do is there's a big bell tower on the campus at UCSB. And we're there in right before classes start in September. So there's no students on campus. But there are a few people on campus who work there or whatever, maybe early students. And they say whenever the bell tower rings, use it as a mindfulness bell, which means you stop what you're doing. And you just take a breath and come back to center and then go on about your business. So there's a there's a bunch of like classes going on. We're doing like seminars during this one part of the day and we're kind of in this big courtyard and there's probably 200 people in this courtyard and there's people some of its meditators, some of its people from the campus whatever. And the bell tower goes off and about half the people in the courtyard who are with the meditators and with the group stop and just breathe. Now, the rest of the people in the courtyard have no idea what the fuck is going on. And they're like walking, they're continuing to walk. And then they like look around and they see like 50 people in this courtyard stopping and breathing. And they all stop and breathe with us. And I thought, okay, sign me up for the perfect world. I think I just found it. So... Anyway, that's my spiel for mindfulness, people. Get out there. Buy yourself a Thich Nhat Hanh book, T-H-I-C-H-N-H-A-T-H-A-H-N, Thich Nhat Hanh. Peace in Every Step is a great place to start. He's a fantastic translator of the Dharma, which we call the teachings of the Buddha, into just beautiful poetry. And and if that's too woo-woo for you, then check out John Kabat-Zinn. He's much more secular, and it's all about mindfulness and training your body through meditation and, and medicine, like literally retraining your brain, as um, Paul and I were talking about earlier. There's fucking science to back this shit up. I'm telling you, they watch the brains of these monks who've been meditating for decades, and their brains are very different than ours. They have the whole frontal lobe, which is compassion and empathy, is all completely lit up the minute they go into into their meditation. It's very, very cool. Love that. All right, people. Had a great day today. Had a beautiful Paul uh, Fugelsang on, uh, talking about his Open Path Psychotherapy Collective. You can help him raise money at Indiegogo. That's I-N-D-I-E-G-O-G-O dot com. 
OPPC. Donate what you can. Let's get some mental health to people who need it in this country, people who fall through the cracks, people who make too much money for state assistance and not enough money to actually get some help with the anxiety and depression that we all face because we're all here clearly waking up from the American dream. Waking up. Get it? Waking up. That's what this is all about, people. Very excited. So um, had some great callers today. Thank you, everyone, for calling in. Love when you call in. Makes me feel loved. <laughs> Next week, I don't know what's happening next week. I'm either going to have Howard Bloom, who's just written The God Problem. He's the man who wrote Genius of the Beast and The Lucifer Principle. This man, talk about fucking genius. This mind goes, I mean, he'll be on the entire 90 minutes. We'll talk. There'll be no room for me. Uh, and I'm either going to have him live or I have Brene Brown, who did that amazing TED Talk on shame and vulnerability, who's got over like 5 million hits on her TED Talk. I'm supposed to be able to talk to her. I'm going to pre-record. Don't know yet. So I'm either going to have her pre-recorded or Howard Bloom next week. Either way, fantastic um, guests. And uh, later this month, I just talked to Marion Williamson today. She's going to come on and we're going to talk about her new project, Sister Giant. And I'll probably get a roundtable in there too this week. Um, so anyway, thank you, everyone. Please go to my website, kellycarlin.com forward slash waking and donate some money uh, to support this podcast and what we do. We do not have corporate sponsorship. We do not have um, uh, even non-corporate sponsorship. Uh, we just have a little PayPal button and we totally appreciate every single penny that you give to us because it goes to uh, helping support what we do here in these conversations with fabulous people. I want to thank Logan Heftel for always being here and pushing buttons and being my um, companion along the way and bringing very cool music to this to this stage. Logan Heftel is the Chris Doritas of Waking from the American Dream. Just want to say that. And of course, you can find me on Twitter at Kelly underscore Carlin and on Facebook at Kelly Carlin, um, my public page. Unless I've met you in person and we've kissed, I do not Facebook you. Just kidding. We don't have to kiss. We can hug or something, something polite like that. I want to thank Smodcast, everyone there, Kevin Smith, Will Wilkins, the whole gang. Um, and uh, we're going to pl- uh, play out uh, with another John Elliott song which once again, you can find his stuff at, uh, oh dear, what was it? It was the hereafter is here dot com. And this is called Gone to Pot. Have a great weekend. We gone to pot. 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 The pot, gone the pot, we 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 gone the pot. In the days of the Industrial Revolution And early mass production 
assembly of workers would sometimes find a defective or out of tolerance part which was not suitable for use this part would be sent back to the smelting room and since the smelting was done in a giant pot these defective parts had gone to pot we gone to pot This has been a production of Smodco Internet Radio. Sir, only at Smodcast.com.